Good morning. As already mentioned, it's, it's like National Chippery Morning Sunday. Everyone's a little bit, little bit more happy. Don't worry, you'll be back to your grumpy normal self next week. First service is always a little bit more full uh, on Sunday. This is actually like technically, she was called like afternoon service, right? It's, it's, but uh, it's, it's good because uh, right out of the bat, it, the verse talks about the fires of hell. So I'm glad you're all in a good mood for our passage today. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and in a specific location in the book of Matthew, where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been given. What I'd like to do to start off is sort of just kind of briefly review the last three weeks of the Sermon on the Mount, as they'll play an important role in the setup for today. So the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins with Beatitudes. Beatitudes just a fa- comes from a fancy Latin term. It just means blessed. And what essentially takes place in this section is Jesus flips the world upside down. Up is down, down is up, left is right, right is left. He inverts the way we fundamentally see and perceive reality. So rather than say something along the lines of, blessed are the rich, the powerful, the mighty, and the strong, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's, it's, it's a flipping of the way we understand the world, the way the world works upside down. The week after that, Jesus gives us these two powerful images, that of salt and light. And we talked about these two images in the big picture, if you will, of scripture, because oftentimes these images are reduced to something along the lines of um, Try to be a good person that does nice things. Be a salt and light type of person. Good people doing nice things. And although certainly I hope, you know, be a nice person. I'm not telling you not to be a nice person. Uh, But those images are not just about doing nice things. They are about being a type of people that become the light of the world in order that all the peoples of the earth, all the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may come to know the living God. So it's be salt and light with a purpose to shine a light and point people to the one God of Israel and the world. And then last week, we talked about how Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And we talked about how uh, in the same way that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, Jesus fulfills Old Testament law. And so now we are on the other side of the fulfillment of law. And that's important today because Jesus has a string of statements that we, that we launched, and we'll be here for a few weeks, where he says something like, you have heard that it was said, but then I say to you. And it's a way of him looking at, back at some commands or some understandings of scriptures found in the Old Testament, and then he shines new light on them. And he actually amplifies and magnifies the kind of ethical demand that's found in the Old Testament. So for example, it's not just, well, don't murder. It's, man, you got to deal with the anger in your heart. So you see, it, it's, not a, it's not a lightening of the ethical demand found in the original command. It's a magnification. It's um, almost like what we will be experiencing probably any time now, where uh, it's a cold day and you get out in the morning, you get in your car and you can't see through, right? Because there's frost. And sometimes it's like ice. And so you have to go get a baseball bat or something and deal with, deal with it because it's like so thick. And what happens is as, as the window defrosts, you begin to see more clearly. So 
When you had a command in the Old Testament like you shall not murder, it's not as if that was a bad command or a wrong command. That's a good command. But you were seeing it through a frosty windshield still needing to be defrosted. When Jesus comes, he, he defrosts the windows so that you now see the original command in high definition. You see it in high resolution. And you see it in its most pure sense. It's not as if God just wants you not to kill people. It actually goes deeper than that. And he's going to do this with a number of things. And the reason why this is so important is there's a misconception that often thinks something um, that sounds roughly akin to, uh, in the Old Testament, man, it was really difficult. There was all these laws. And as we've talked about in the past weeks, there were 613 rules, commands, and statutes. Man, there's all these laws, man. 613 of them. It was so rough back then. But thank God now we're in the New Testament and all we have to do is love our neighbor. And... That's, that understanding is common, actually. People think, in the New Testament, we got it so easy. In the Old Testament, they had it rough. Well, that's fundamentally flawed. That only works is if you use a narrow and shallow definition of love as you think it ought to be defined. But if you use Jesus' standard of love, you understand, like, this is way more difficult than the Old Testament text. Old Testament said, do not murder. Jesus is going to amplify and magnify that. So it's not as if the old command is somehow bad or disappearing or fading or fleeting. It's been fulfilled and now Jesus cleans the windshield and you see God's perfect and ethical standard finally revealed. And man, it's no joke. You want to try to love people like Jesus loves. Because in the next several weeks as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to define his standard. And trust me, it'd be much easier just to shave my beard a certain way not plant a garden with jalapenos and beets. If that doesn't make sense because you were missed last week, that's fine. But we went over why the Bible doesn't like that and why God abhors some beets. Um, go back and listen to it. Uh, that's just, no, I, I'll just get a checklist. I'll set reminders on my phone. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But man, to be a Sermon on the Mount type of person that's no joke. The other important thing before we dive in is that Jesus is giving humans their proper vocation and thus showing us what true humanity ought to look like. True human beings ought to behave and act in a certain manner. Sometimes these theologians will, will say this is Jesus defining of a new humanity, but it's a new humanity precisely because it's a very old humanity found in the garden, the original blueprint of human beings. They're made in his image, told to have dominion over creation, and the intent is that creation would flourish under the wise rule of human beings who are reflecting the glory and goodness of God on earth as he does in heaven. So when you live out these rules and these commands and be a Sermon on the Mount person, you're actually showing the world what a true human ought to look like. And also, more importantly than that, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all that the Sermon in the Mount commands. He, he does it perfectly. So you have a living, walking, breathing example of the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus. And so the highest aim for a Christian is the actual person and work and demonstration and an example of Jesus. He is the true human in the purest sense. True God, true human, true man. Okay, so let's dig in. You have heard it was said to those of old, 
You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Told you, it's better be chippery today. You thought, you thought you're awesome because you haven't killed anybody. Now Jesus is saying, you're in danger of the hell of fire if you don't like people. You got some anger in your heart. And so you see, Jesus is taking the original commands found in the original law. Do not murder. That, that appears in the Ten Commandments. appears in the book of Numbers. appears in the book of Deuteronomy. But he's, he's going further into it. He's diving deeper and he's revealing the perfect standard of a perfect and holy God. It's not just don't murder, man. It's, it's much more than that. And there's a couple important reasons for this. One, as mentioned, this is God's perfect holy standard. It's not just what you do externally. Like what you do externally matters, but God also sees the heart. He sees your thoughts. And so it's not just about what's out there. It's what's going on inside. But also there's a very... Um, practical level to this, and I hesitate to use that word because it doesn't quite capture what Jesus is revealing here, but it'll, it'll be sufficient for now. This, the same substance or the same seed, if you will, that grows into murder is the same seed and substance that begins with, with anger and hatred. So picture a seed, like there's a seed planted in you, and given the right conditions, this seed can grow into something murderous. But make no mistake about it, even if you don't ever actually end up murdering somebody, that same thing, hatred toward another human being, is the beginning of the plant, the weed, if you will, that grows in the soil and takes over. You know what happens when you see little weeds and you don't pick them, right? You come back like in 48 hours and somehow it's this big. It's because that seed that is sown, that, that, that's hatred, that's bitterness, it can grow into something murderous. Now you may be thinking, oh yeah, man, but you know, I'd never, I'd never murder anybody. I'm, like, I'm not that bad. Maybe. Maybe, because that seed grows in the right conditions, with the right water, with the right soil, with the right nutrients, that plant grows. And truth be told, you have been afforded to live in a time and a place where God has graciously put restraints on human evil so that that seed is not watered and taken care of to maximum degree. So let me, let me explain what I mean. You could have grown up, let's say you, you, you were born 4,000 years ago in some place, some part of the world where there's a great big river between you and the opposing tribe on the other side. And you could have been raised ever since you were a young kid, a young boy, that the people on the other side of the river, they're an enemy and you should hate them. And if ever you're off wandering on a hunt and you see them stray off alone, you and your boys kill them and come back and we'll come and celebrate you as a hero. If you were brought up in that way, you'd be more inclined. Like the seeds of that aggression and hatred are being watered. You say, ah, nah, that would never happen to me. History says otherwise. When you look historically at things like genocide, 
what occurs. Everyday, normal human beings participate in horrific things. So I don't know what would happen of you as an individual. That's between you and God. But what I do know is that God restrains human evil so that things don't always develop in us. The depths of our depravity are completely unknown to us. And we have no idea what lies into us until put in the proper conditions or the wrong conditions, if you will. It's one of the scariest things in history is people just slowly inch further and further away from goodness and into evil. And it's like, dude, what, what, what's occurring here? And so Jesus goes, hey, look at this. You need to pay very close attention. The same thing that turns into murder in some people can grow in your heart. And yeah, maybe for, hopefully all of you, it'll never turn into anything murderous or monstrous, but it's the same thing that's growing in there, that same sin Full seed is there. And so when you see it, you need to address it and deal with it. And so Jesus says, when you, when you have anger towards a brother, you are liable to judgment. If you insult your brother, you're liable to counter. And then he magnifies and says, even if you say you fool to another person, you are in danger of the hell of fire. Now, quick note, he says, um, if you are angry with your brother, uh, the word brother here in Greek is Adelphos. It's a general term. It doesn't mean literally like your one male brother in your direct family. So I just say that because, um, ladies, it's not as if like, oh, this is one of those sermons we're dealing with all the guys and all their, their issues, man. Jesus is going to address them. These commands are applying to everybody. No one could wiggle out of it. If you tell someone you fool you're in danger of the fires of hell because you have no idea how that seed can grow. You have no idea what it could do to the human heart. Now, this hell of fire, very powerful word. Jesus and the New Testament author, and the whole of scripture for that matter, have various words and images and concepts they use to describe the final judgment of, of wickedness. And in this case, Jesus uses a, 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 a phrase of words. It says hell of fire in English, but in Greek, it's Gehenna of fire. And Gehenna is a transliteration of an Aramaic phrase, Gehenna, and it literally just means Valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom. So this is where it kind of, it's kind of weird. But Jesus is essentially saying, if you don't deal with this, this anger and this bitter, this, this sin in your heart, you are in danger of being thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. You're going like, man, that place must be horrible. This great threat, Valley of Hinnom, in Greek, Gehenna. So I'm going to show you a picture of Gehenna so you can see how terrifying it is. You ready? Just the, the little piece of land in that circle. Terrifying, right? Going like, what? That don't seem too bad, right? You know, actually, I think I'll just stick with being angry at everybody all the time. That's not that bad. That's not bad. That's, that's the Valley of Hinnom. It's a literal physical location that you can go to today. It's in Israel. This is a picture of modern Jerusalem. Here in the center is Mount Moriah. That's the Temple Mount where the, the, the temple is. 
and then to the right of the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. And then in Jerusalem, if you were to go from the temple all the way down here to the Hinnom Valley, that's Gehenna. That's where Jesus is threatening you to throw you into if you don't deal with the anger in your heart. It's like, what's up with that? Gehenna don't seem that bad. Okay. There's, there's several f- layers of things going on and rich imagery is being developed. So first, there's a story behind the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. And you see it all the way in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was times when not only Israel fell into false worship, but the kings of Israel would fall into false worship. So think how horrible of a thing that is. The kings of God's people are participating in pagan worship. One of the locations that was prominent for pagan worship by Israel's kings is this valley of Hinnom. Now what's even worse, however, is that they own, they, the kings didn't just practice pagan idolatry there. They would go as far as to practice human sacrifice at this location. What's even worse than that, it wouldn't just be normal human sacrifice. The kings of Israel would sacrifice children to false gods in the Valley of Hinnom. And what's even worse than that is the means by which they made these sacrifices was fire. So there was child sacrifice by fire in Gehenna to false gods, all being done by Israel's leadership. And so some images should start to come to mind of fire and smoke, right? There is this this sacrifice of of the innocent, the child, in fire and smoke. And on top of that, there's another image. It's the image of the monster. So um, we talked about how Jesus is the perfect human, and the Sermon on the Mount gives us commands on how humanity ought to, to live and behave, okay? So there's a, there's, there's a way in which humanity ought to operate. Jesus is the perfect example of that. What would be like the absolute opposite of a Sermon on the Mount people, the absolute opposite of Jesus in his true humanity? It would be the inversion of that. And so at the very beginning of, of the scriptures, you have the creation account where human beings are made in the image of God and they are told to have dominion over creation and, and the world and humanity is supposed to flourish and be in harmony with each other on the horizontal and in harmony with God in the vertical. The opposite of that harmony and flourishing is an evil that takes human life. But like the worst possible version of that is the killing of the innocent child. Like that is the worst. This, this is why, notice the language that's used when you're, when you're watching the news and you hear some horrific story of something that's happened to a child. What language is used? It's inhumane. It's, it's the flipping of upside down of what humans ought to be to one another. And you hear language like, what type of monster could do something like that? This language is important. What type of monster could do that? And what we as humans are doing is we're searching and reaching for the proper vocabulary to try and describe an archetypical reality, the archetypical reality of the monster. The monster is the one that hurts the innocent, that hurts the child. The most monstrous thing is the hurting of the innocent child. That's what the monster is. And so the monster is anti-human by definition. 
So this location is the anti-human monstrous place. It's everything that human beings ought not to be. Kings who were afforded their job responsibility of protecting the people are now destroying their people in human sacrifice and false worship. So Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, is the place of the monster. It is the anti-human place. It is the place of fire and smoke. So you see how all these images are coming together. There's like a confluence of images to create this like vivid nightmare image. Additionally, the Valley of Hinnom would have been outside the city walls in ancient Jerusalem, which we've talked about from a couple weeks ago. The, the city walls, inside the city walls, are safety and security. So to be outside of the city is to be outside of safety and security. So you have the monster, the anti-human place. There's no safety, there's no security, there's fire and smoke, there's lies, there's false worship there. On top of that, in the ancient world, if you are outside of the city, you are outside of communion with the people. Now that may not sound like a big deal to modern hyper-individualistic people, but to be cut off from the people in that time is like the worst possible thing. This is why in the Old Testament, exile is a judgment. To be cut off from the land and to be cut off from people is a horrible judgment and consequence. We're not like that. Like when we think about being cut off from the people, we're not like, oh, that's the worst thing that could happen to me, man, to be cut off from my people, my friends and family. Some of you are probably like, I wouldn't mind to be cut off from, from my people, friends and family, at least most of them. I mean, think about this. And this is going to bring up some, some sour notes on National Chippery Sunday. Um, but our teenagers say things like, I wish I wasn't a part of this family. I wish you weren't my mom. I wish you weren't my dad. Thousands of years ago, the worst possible thing imaginable would be to be cut off from family and your people. So the image of Gehenna is the place where you're cut off from people, cut off from the land. It's a place of fire and smoke and monstrous behavior. It is the anti-human place. And Jesus says, if you flirt with this thing called anger and you call someone a fool, you are in danger of Gehenna. Do you see how serious Jesus takes this? That same seed that can develop into murder can be placed into any one of our hearts. And maybe it won't ever grow into murder, but it can grow into a host of things that could wreak havoc on your life. So he says, so if you are offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before and the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now there's a principle in here that often gets repeated in churches, which is, which is fine. It says something along the lines, like if you've done something wrong and someone has beef against you, there's some issues. Hey, before you even go to church, go deal with that issue right? Something along the lines, you might have heard something like that, um, which it's one of those things that people say, but like no one, no one ever puts into practice because let's be real for a moment. How many of you would, would be here right now? We'll come back to that in a moment. But it's like, man, yeah, it's like, man, this is tough stuff. Okay, now here's what's crazy. 
This is a map of Israel. Where is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount? He, it's Israel, yes, but he's in northern Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, way up here at the top of the map, okay? Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. So before you go and, and bring to the altar, you go be reconciled to your brother. Okay, where is the altar? See, it's confusing because modern people, we have churches. So we just think, oh, Jesus, he's in Northern Galilee. Go to the local synagogue where they make sacrifices, go to the altar and then be right and then walk the block back over here. Prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Jewish faith is completely temple-centric. There's, there's one altar in the temple. And where's the temple? Jerusalem. So Jesus preaching to people in Northern Galilee and he tells them, when you go down to the altar in Jerusalem and you remember you've wronged somebody, you go and be reconciled and then come and bring your gift. Now from Northern Galilee to Jerusalem, three days journey by ancient standards. And it's not like a nice three days journey, right? No nice cars, air conditioning. You go, you go, you've done this three days journey, you go back and be reconciled to your brother and then you can come back. So again, do you see how serious Jesus takes these things? He knows where they lead, what can develop in the human heart if left unchecked. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's this idea that we wanna be right with God. We have a vertical relationship, go up, vertical relationship. And we want this relationship to be right with God. But precisely because we want this vertical relationship to be right with God, he commands us that we ought to have peace and harmony in the horizontal, our relationships with other human beings. And so it's not as if we, we just need to be nice and, and loving and make sure we're all reconciled. It's actually precisely because we're trying to do right before God that we reconcile with human beings. And it's precisely because God has extended us grace and forgiveness and reconciliation in the vertical that then we can then in turn extend that horizontal into our earthly relationships. Likewise, Jesus um, gives some very practical words after this. It's like, he deals with the spiritual dimensions. Man, you're danger of hellfire, danger of going to Gehenna, all this stuff. And then he says, and, and you know what? There's also some earthly consequence you can avoid by doing this. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So it's on top of the dangers of hell and all this stuff. You know where like having unresolved tension with human beings can lead? It can have just straight up earthly consequences. It's like classic wisdom literature type, type stuff. It's like, do this. Otherwise it can lead to a host of other problems. Okay. What I want to do is, is look at this, come, come back to this principle, this idea of not even going to the altar till you're reconciled with another human because I've observed that it's been abused and misused in, in church circles, oftentimes. Many times this principle is flattened so that you get something like, if ever you have any issues with another human being, before you even go to church, 
Go take care of that. Now, there's a directional problem with that summary statement. Jesus did not say, if there's any issues of bitterness, anger, anger, anger uh, unforgiveness, then you need to go deal, deal with that before you go to church. He says, if your brother has something against you, the direction is, you've done something wrong, or maybe they think you've done something wrong, but let's say you've done something wrong, and now someone has an offense taken up against you. You are to go and own that and reconcile with that person. So you see, there's the direction. I've done something wrong. Someone has taken up offense. And God says, don't go try and act like it's all cool in the vertical when you're out here not even dealing with your relationships with other human beings. That is not the same thing as someone who has been harmed or who has been wounded or hurt and telling them, hey, I know you haven't forgiven this person over all the horrible things they've done to you, so don't even go in church till you fix that. Do you see the difference, the direction? The direction. One is, I've done something wrong and I need to own it. That's not the same thing as, when things have happened to me that I shouldn't even go to church before I reconcile with that person. And there's a number of reasons for this. One, because depending upon what type of hurt was done to you, church is probably the only place in the world where you're gonna find the hope, healing, and love and encouragement from other people who've experienced grace and forgiveness to then develop the strength to, to go forward with your Christian walk. It's like, you wanna be around church people, you wanna be at church to deal with those issues. So that person who's been harmed or wrong needs, needs to, be, to be in church. And so this is not saying, if you can't forgive somebody who's done horrible things, don't even come to church. There's gonna be another challenge for you, which I'll show you in a moment, but it's very important that you separate these things. One command is for people who are wronging people. They've done the wrong. The offense is taken up and now they should seek out reconciliation with that person. It's not the same thing as when something bad's happened to you. Well, if you can't just learn to forgive that person, well, then you're not a real Christian. Don't even go to church. Because I've seen that type of thing said in one way or another. So let me give the separate challenge to, to people who have been wronged because it's a, it's, a different, it's a different thing. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors. Or forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's this idea that the Christian realizes that we've seen and experienced grace and forgiveness. And now with my life and my actions, I am to extend that to others. So there still is a command that we need to receive grace and learn to, re to, to extend forgiveness into the world. But that's, it's, it's not the same command. Later it says this, Mark says it, well, Mark says it like this in his gospel. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you are a Christian, the Bible says that you were once an enemy of God. While you were an enemy, Christ died for you. 
When Jesus is on the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christians are people who have experienced grace and forgiveness and then in turn, learn day by day to extend that to the rest of the world. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Jesus is saying those same seeds of anger and hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness, those things can grow and you wanna deal with them. And I know that in a room this size, there's a diversity of, of seeds that are planted in hearts. Some of anger, some of bitterness, some of unforgiveness. And I am telling you, Jesus is warning you that if you don't start dealing with that stuff, they grow and they take over. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I've seen this. I've seen people on their deathbed who are bitter and angry and they spent the last several decades of their life being bitter and angry and holding all of this inside. The weeds grew out of control and they never took care of them. And they live miserable and they die miserable. And Jesus says, the same thing that leads to murder can be found here just as a a small baby weed. And so you have to deal with it. It's not easy. And especially when you're on the side of being wronged. I'm not saying that you just wake up and be like, oh, I've been forgiven so I could forgive all the horrible things that have happened to me. That's, that, can, that can happen in a moment by God's divine miraculous hand. And I've seen it. And other times it takes years of growth, but it's gonna take place in a Christian community where you're seeing other people walk in that type of forgiveness. And I could tell you something else as a pastor. There are stories taking place right now of people learning to walk in grace and forgiveness in this community that are are just unbelievable. And I've heard stories from people at this church who have been wronged in the most horrific possible ways. And them saying, God, I don't even know where to start, but I don't I don't want I don't want to hold I don't want to hold on to this my whole life. So Lord, just please with today, let me let, let me start learning to give this to you. Let me start learning to give this to you. And we have stories, man, it's crazy, of people who have been wronged and they begin to give that hurt and pain to God. And, and then they go back and, and reconcile with their families. And I'm telling you, there's some families who just on an earthly level, you're going, there's no way this family is ever going to become Christian. These people, no way, man. And I've seen whole families come to Jesus because one person started walking in grace and forgiveness and people are changed. You have no idea the power and strength you have in you when God's spirit is working through you. And so it's not easy, but Jesus says, you deal with this stuff, man, because it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. We're gonna look just briefly, much more quickly at one other, you have heard it said, because there's a thousand things to talk about with this one, but I just wanna focus in on one or two components of it. 
First one dealt with anger. Now we're going to deal with lust. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see how this is much harder. Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, you're not committing adultery. Good for you. I tell you, God's perfect and holy ethical command to you today now is don't even look with lust at another person. Because what does the seed of lust turn into? You may think it won't, but the seed of lust is the same substance and that thing could grow into adultery. Again, as a pastor, I've seen this. It's very rare to talk with people where it's like, one day I woke up and I decided I want to just train wreck my marriage. I just want to just destroy it. Most often, there's a seed and you give it the right conditions, give it the right water, give it the right temperature, you give it the right soil and the seed of lust grows and grows and grows. And then you find yourself in a place you never thought or imagined you could find yourself in. I'll never be a murderer. I'll never do this to my spouse. Slowly over time, sometimes year after year after year until the plant's fully developed. And by the way, it's very difficult because um, we don't live in a culture that waters the murderous seed very, very much. Waters the anger seed, but it's not like encouraging murder. We live in a culture that's like the best possible environment for lust to grow into adultery. It's just getting water, like there's like a composter going and just giving it super fresh nutrient soil all of the time. You can't walk into a grocery store without seeing images. You can't drive the road, there's billboards. I won't spend too much here because we've done a series on this and we'll continue to do series on this, but what internet pornography is doing to our culture, to our children, it's the perfect environment for lust to grow into to horrible, monstrous things. And oftentimes we just casually go along with it. When, many of the first Christians would not even know how to process the stuff that Christians casually take in in the name of entertainment. The TV shows, the movies that we just casually watch and think are no big deal, Many of the first Christians, they wouldn't even have the categories to, like, what? And so you have to deal with this stuff because it can grow into something monstrous. Listen to what, this is how Jesus says to deal with it. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. That's Gehenna again. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell, Gehenna. Now, immediately, I've seen this time and time again. This is what happens. We go, Jesus, Jesus does not mean this literally. He's using exaggerated language. He doesn't mean it literally. And more importantly than that, you need to know as a Christian, you're saved by grace. So even though maybe you're stuck in this stuff, don't worry about it. You're saved by grace. Jesus is using uh, exaggerated metaphoric language. And here's the thing. Yes, he, Jesus doesn't literally mean chop off your hand. The point of vivid imagery is to say, 
you should be doing with the same degree and intensity as chopping your hand off. You should be doing something akin to that metaphor in your battle against sin. In other words, wage war against the sin in your life. Like holiness matters. Like people just, it, it, people think they all, there's like, everyone's always afraid of like legalism sticking it. Like, let's not talk about Christian ethics too much because we all know we're saved by grace. Yes, we're saved by grace. And because we've been saved by grace and adopted into his family, we wanna live like our Jesus tells us to live. And you wage war against it. You don't just sit around and tolerate it. Why? One, because God's holy, perfect standard. And two, it will kill you. It will ruin your life. The lust that you dabble with will ruin your life. It'll ruin your marriage. The anger and unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart will ruin your life. You have to deal with that stuff. So we're saved by grace. We're brought in, we're adopted because God is gracious. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And now he's brought us into his fold and given us his commands. Is this now how you ought to live? And if you have this secret sin in your life, it's so important that you deal with it. It's as if you should chop off your hand. People do this too much. They say that's not literal, so then it means nothing. No, use the metaphor and translate the meaning. Wage war on sin in your life. Okay, so um, last week was super theological. This week's super practical. So I'm gonna end with super practical steps. Two steps for each of these commands. The ones dealing with anger and then the ones dealing with lust. Okay. First thing, for the first issue dealing with anger and reconciliation and forgiveness. If you've wronged somebody, reconcile with them. Now remember the direction. What I'm talking about here is for, for people who you know you've wronged somebody, you've done something wrong and they've taken up offense against you. Don't pretend as if everything in the vertical is cool between you and God when you're wronging fellow image bearers and not dealing with it. So go to them and be reconciled. Now, um, I, I've done this several times in my life. Um, and what you do is you ask God to like reveal, reveal to me people that I've wronged because you've wronged people you don't even know about. You, you have, you totally have. Um, and so I, I've done this and every so often God will reveal something to me. I'll just feel convicted. I'll just feel convicted about something. And then I'll reach out to the person. And sometimes the person goes, Isaac, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even remember what you did. I don't even remember, man. It's cool, bro. You know, I, got a whole, I did a lot more things to you, man. So don't even worry about it. And then sometimes though, a person will like tear up and say, you have no idea how much that hurt me, how much I felt wrong by you in this. And thank you so much for coming back to this. And there's thankfulness and gratitude and reconciliation. For the other side, for people who have been wronged, um, I say, Give it to God and forgive them. Now, I said in one sentence what may take years. So I'm not trying to simplify this. It just has to go on a slide. But maybe today is the first day where you actually begin to acknowledge some hurt in your life and say, God, I, I 
I don't want this control. I don't want this always controlling me. I don't want to have this bitterness in my heart. I don't want this hatred. And so today, I don't have it all figured out, God, but I just want to begin. I just want to start trying to give things over to you. I want to start dealing with this weed because I know what it'll grow into. And you take baby steps. And I can tell you, people at this church have taken baby steps and they had no idea what the journey that that would lead them. Whole families coming together and being reconciled. And I know some of you have very painful backgrounds, very painful backgrounds. And it may seem impossible. And by man's measures, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I've seen it. I've seen families healed. I've seen marriages restored. I've seen relationships like people just hate each other. And it doesn't always end like that. I'm not going to pretend. It doesn't always end with a happy ending. But on your end, you deal with what's in your heart. And you say, God, I've been forgiven. I was an enemy. Help me to learn to walk in that forgiveness and give to you my hurts and my pains. And you just trust God. And then the place you need to be, this is why I say you can't abuse that text. The place you need to be to deal with hurt and pain is with other people who have hurt and pain and are learning to walk in the healing and newness of life in Christ. And you do that together as a family. You can't do it by yourself. And then lastly, two steps with lust. Uh, confess your sin to someone this week. Uh, sin holds power in secrecy. You need to show other people the, the weeds that are in your heart and just confess it. And that may be your first step, just sharing it with someone that you trust. There's another Christian that you know will pray for you. you, you, can't, you can't, you're not gonna solve it keeping it secret. And so you learn to, to, to share that with others. It's a serious thing. You live in a culture that is feeding the weeds of lust and creating the perfect environment for them to grow in. And you have no clue the type of havoc it can wreak on your life. It could destroy it. So deal with it while you have the time. And then two... Ask wise counsel for wisdom. What I mean by that is, it, this, this is true of a lot of things, but especially with, with issues relating to, to lust and issues dealing with uh, things that create behavioral patterns. It's not as if you have this, this, this sin um, and you go, oh, I've confessed it and now I'll never do it again. Like, I'm good. I don't have any of these problems anymore. You've had habits in your life that make you gravitate towards these things. And so you have to have wise counsel in your life to help you put restraints and boundaries in your life so you don't put yourself in situations where you're gonna water this thing. I mean, this is, it's almost comical, but how many of you have said like at the beginning of the new year, it's like, ah, January comes, I'm gonna lose some weight, man. It's January. And it's like, but you know, there's some leftover cheesecake from Christmas in, in the fridge. Like you can't leave the leftover cheesecake in the fridge and make this commitment. You need a wise counsel. Someone else to come over and eat it on your eat that cheesecake so you don't have to worry about it. But you know what I mean. So seek out wise counsel. And if you're here um, and you don't have wise counsel, you don't have friends that maybe you could confess to, maybe share with, um, 
reach out to us. And this is something as simple as you get one of those little connect cards, those prayer cards, just put, I'd like to talk to a pastor and someone will reach out to you. You don't do it by yourself. So we're gonna transition to communion and closing with a worship song. But here's the thing. When we do these things, we become a Sermon on the Mount people. And that is the goal of us as a church. We wanna be salt and light. We wanna be a Sermon on the Mount people. We wanna be human in the sense that Jesus demonstrates for us. We wanna walk in the light of his grace and we wanna embody this so that people then in turn can know the God that we've come to know, not just to be good people who do nice things. We submit to the law of God in order that we might point people to the God that we've come to know. Because to know Jesus, there is nothing sweeter. There is nothing better. There is nothing greater. And so we don't strive under the burden of his commands. They are sweet to us. They are our treasures. We long to to obey because we know they are good commands and he's a good father who wants what's best for us. And I hope that was made so abundantly clear. God says, don't allow lust in your heart, not because he's up there saying, I'm just waiting to get you. He knows what that turns into. Holiness matters. Christian living matters. Jesus is the perfect human. And so we have the perfect example. And so where do we find our inspiration to live like this? It's in Jesus and in his death and resurrection. Because on the cross, Jesus embodies it perfectly. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While we're enemies of God, he dies for us. And so Lord, you've done all this for me. I hated you in my heart. I didn't want anything to do with you. From heaven, you sought me. You died, you forgive. So Lord, it is my joy and my honor now to serve you and follow in the example that you've set. So let's stand as we take communion. Jesus says, of the bread, this is my body broken for you. And this is why we can say that the sweetest thing in life is to know Jesus, that a king would die on our behalf, that God himself would come to save us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. So Lord, as we've been brought into your fold, help us to live faithfully. We remember your sacrifice today. And Jesus takes the cup, the cup of the new covenant. This is his blood poured out for us. And so Lord, help us to be faithful, to be a Sermon on the Mount people. We will continue to point the world to you to proclaim the gospel until you return. In Jesus' name. Father, as we close with worship, may your son be exalted in this place. True God, true man, a perfect example. We thank you that by his death, we are brought into the fold. Lord, we need you. We cannot accomplish any of this without you. And so we ask for strength, conviction, and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.